I would like you to think with me for a few moments about the power and the wisdom of the cross. We're reading this morning from the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, beginning at verse 21. Since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. It's a very difficult thing to live in two worlds. We all do as Christians. We live in the context of our own Christian community, our own faith, home, and we live in the broader world. And our young people begin to notice this in their school days, middle school, high school, summer retreats, commitments to Jesus, and then back into that wider world again where Things are not that way. And our college students who leave home, perhaps spending years with a Christian community here at the church, going on these summer retreats, serving on mission trips, committing themselves to Jesus, and then winding up in a, in a dormitory where anything but morals are practiced, and in classrooms where the wisdom of human beings and the technology of our time determines truth. Which world is real? And the struggle goes on to be a good Christian to remember the things that were committed to God and the present problem pressures that assault us. We Christians need to think more, to make more judgments. We cannot simply go with the flow. We need to stop and consider who we are and why we are what we are. And this isn't easy, is it? All of us share in these two worlds. We find it difficult to partake of both with equal enthusiasm because they are becoming increasingly incompatible. Well, that isn't a new thing. That's always been the case. From the time of Jesus, it has been true that those who receive him 
are ushered into a new relationship and the Holy Spirit binds hearts in different dimensions. And there's something that has changed radically by way of outlook and attitude. And with it goes that heavy responsibility that we all feel. Now, Paul wrote about this. He wrote of the Jews and the Greeks or Gentiles. The Jews had their world in which they lived, believing they were a special people because God had called them to a special task. And the Greeks had their world in which they lived, and they believed, and it has come down through history, that they represent the hallmark of wisdom. And we have the world in which we live, similar to those two worlds. What two things do the people of this generation want? They want, in the first place, some action on the part of God. They want him to do something. If there is, in their little world, illness, disappointment, loss, whatever it may be, God needs to move in and do something. If we do not have the strength of others and the well-being of others, we want God to do something. Just like the Jews. They knew God as a God who did things. After all, he brought them out of bondage, out of Egypt. He led them away from Pharaoh, the strongest man in the world. He ushered them through a Red Sea and drowned all the armies of, of Pharaoh. And then he took them through the wilderness. A cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night led them through to the promised land. Fed them, gave them water when they needed it. Raised up a mighty King David who, who led the troops to secure the borders of that land. And they knew God as a God of action. He was a God who did things. In fact, when the scripture was written by those people, God is always a God of action. You never read of a static, contemplative God of the heavenly spheres. You read of someone who is doing things. In the beginning, God created. There's always a verb attached to God. That's what we want. It's what they wanted. The Greeks, on the other hand, they had another idea which is our counterpart also for what is the second thing that we want of God today? How often do we ask him, why, Lord? Tell us why this is so. What is life all about? We want to know the mysteries of it. And when we cannot believe, then we create our own. We conceive of the fact that things have evolved from nowhere. And because we decide that, we make it scientific fact and teach it as though it is a fact. When in fact it's nothing more than a theory. Because they can't explain, no one can explain where that first element of life came from.
we always get driven back to the mystery. But we want to know. We pretend we know when we don't know. Because we want that security of knowledge. We want wisdom. Well, the puzzling things of life. Why doesn't God act the way we think he ought to act? Why doesn't he tell us and explain the mysteries? His answer, said Paul, the power, the wisdom of God is in Christ crucified. It's in the cross. Can you imagine such a statement in that world? The Jews thought it was a scandal. Scandalon, Paul says. It embarrassed them. Here they had been watching for the Messiah, the mighty son of David, who would sit upon David's throne and rule in his name. And what do they get? But a carpenter of Nazareth who dies on a cross is a common criminal. And Paul calls that power. They found that hard to believe. And the Gentiles? They were looking for the wisdom of God. Their golden age was the age of the philosophers who speculated about ultimate reality, who spent their lives in the highest calling there was, philosophy, contemplating, thinking, speculating. The elite of the time were the thinkers, not the doers in their world. And now Paul comes and says to them on Mars Hill, I can tell you about this unknown God. He holds the mysteries of the world in his hands. And they sat there breathlessly waiting for him to tell, him, tell them about him. And he said, you know who it is? It's Jesus crucified. A cross, an answer of wisdom? Nonsense, they said. Foolishness makes no sense whatever that this Jewish carpenter should be to all people of the world a source of wisdom. Yes, as Paul, that's God's answer. It's God's answer. May not be your answer, but it's God's answer. Think about it for a moment. We come to sit at the Lord's table. There's bread, there's the cup, the broken body and the shed blood. We do this in remembrance of Christ crucified, the power and the wisdom of God. What power? What wisdom? Look again. Power is the ability to do what we intend. What was God's intent? His intent was to reach into the world with his kingdom. Not only to re-enlighten people, but to change people to what they were once when he created 
the human race. To bring them back again to their pristine purity before the devil, with all of his deception, came upon them with such convincing power. The rule of God in the hearts of people. This was his intent. This would be the wisest thing he could do in the light of the dilemma of sin and evil in the world. How can he relieve people of the suffering and of all of the strife and the conflict, the hatred, the abuse, the destructiveness, the wars? How can he settle it all? What would be the wisest thing to do? Certainly not more technology. This week, Netanyahu and Arafat met in Washington to discuss one of the oldest problems in the world, the struggles in the Middle East. What's it all about? It's about that cycle of evil. When evil is done, evil is returned. Someone exploits you, you exploit them. Someone injures you, you get back at them. You get even. And for generations, that's what's happened in the Middle East. For injury produces anger, resentment, retaliation. And this produces pain and evil. And that produces more anger and then more retaliation. And it's that cycle that continues to move through the world. And it's that sinfulness, that mind of the father of all lies that gets a grip on us. And God came to break that cycle to destroy the fact that we are inevitably doomed to a constant bit of suffering of evil in this world. And so he sent his son. And Christ refused to let evil and injury do more harm. And he was battered and spat upon, beaten, rejected, and finally nailed to a cross. What would he do? Was it within him as a human being to retaliate and get angry and a curse? Wasn't even in a his mind. For without sin there is no such thought. One doesn't return evil for evil. He prays for those who despitefully use. And he, he also pleads in prayer for his enemies. And when Satan thought that if he could get them him in his grip 
and nail him to a cross, he would again start a cycle of evil in the world. He, he missed his guess. He found Jesus praying for forgiveness for those who had done this dastardly thing. And Jesus on the cross broke that cycle of evil and demonstrated to us what it means to forgive and what it means to be peacemakers and what it means to embarrass those who perpetrate the sinful nature of humanity. And then he, he also earned for us the Spirit whom he now sends to make this possible in our lives. Think of it. We, co-workers with Jesus, in the fellowship of his sufferings, remember reading that in Paul, we who then take part in this become peacemakers. We are the people who break the cycle of evil the way Jesus did. We will not return evil for evil. We will pray for our enemies. We will do good to those who despitefully use us. Or we are not his children. And God came into the world to give us that strength. He doesn't say you have to do it on your own. He knows we cannot. But we're human beings. What can you expect of us? You can't. But equipped with the spirit that lived with him in him, the spirit that raised him from the dead, you talk about power. That spirit in us is the spirit that gives us the ability, the capacity to forgive, to neutralize evil. Think of the, the millions of people who come today to his table to worship Jesus. If we would all become peacemakers, like Jesus made peace on the cross for those who were estranged from God by their sins. Starts in your home with your spouse your children. It reaches into the schoolroom and into the communities and into the world in which we live. The power of God is in the crucified Christ and it's in his people whom he's commissioned to represent him and we come to take his body and take his blood and claim him as our own. This is what motivates us. It's Christ living through us. And it's that very nature which becomes the power and the wisdom of God. And if you want to know a power that's strong enough to settle the problems of the world, whether it's in Bosnia or Cambodia, wherever it is, do you want to know the power that brings spouses back together? You want to know a power that will bring all that the communists said would split us apart? 
when they talked about capital and labor as though they had to be at odds with each other. There's a power that unites us, and it's a power that transcends our human thinking and our human hearts. It comes by the infusion of the Spirit that was in Jesus Christ. Today we come to think about that power. It's at least one way of looking at the cross. To see that reconciling strength of Jesus as he broke that chain reaction of evil in the world. And he does it in our lives and he'll do it in our society, our homes. And this morning we come to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for the power and the wisdom of the cross. Amen.